And our scripture reading this morning comes from Paul's letter to the Ephesians, chapter 1, verses 15 through 19. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you. What are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe, according to the working of His great might? This is God's Word. Please be seated. Well, good morning. Uh, Again, my name is Damien, and as Ben said, we are in a sermon series in Ephesians. We kicked it off last week, so if you're visiting today, you didn't miss much. You missed the first opening opening sermon. And what what we heard was that Ephesians is a letter written by the Apostle Paul, and it was a letter meant to circulate among a bunch of churches. And because of that, the letter is designed, it's written in such a way where it's almost like Paul's manifesto of what the church and the Christian life ought to be like. It's what Paul gets to write about when he doesn't have a fire to put out, as we heard last week. And today, in our passage, starting in verse 15, Paul picks up on a prayer. He begins to pray for the Ephesians, and he begins to pray for these Christians who would read this letter. In Paul's letters, praying is a normal thing. He he actually does in all of his letters. He'll do it again in this letter. He does it in Colossians. He does it in Philippians. He doesn't do it in Galatians, but there are reasons for that. But he does it more than once here. And when he begins praying in verse 15, what we see is that he's praying for a few specific things. But those things are under an umbrella of one thing, which is he prays that all Christians who read this letter, who hear this letter, would have the eyes of their heart enlightened so that they would know God better. That they would have a fuller knowledge of God and his power toward them. Now, we live in a day and age where growth and knowledge is required. Right? And in fact, in our age, in this time period, in our generation, growth and increasing and constant knowledge is more important than even a generation ago would have possibly known. Right? There can actually be a decent amount of anxiety over the type of information, the type of knowledge that you are required to constantly take in. For some of you, you're in jobs where you have to recertify for some type of license every few years. And it's not the same test. Right? A lot has happened in those five or ten years. And so you find yourself studying again, even though you've been a practitioner in this field for years, maybe your entire career. For others of you, you work in jobs where new computer programs come out regularly and you're you're having to learn new languages or new software and you feel like I just learned the last one now I have to learn a brand new one for some of you it could be cell phones right the new cell phone you feel forced to get a new phone you've had that one for eight years and finally your carrier calls you and says you have to get a new phone you just have to we're phasing that one out and then you're overwhelmed with learning the, the simplest things on this new phone. For some of you, it's parenting, right? Every stage your kids go into, you feel like, I have no idea who this child is. Yesterday they were one way, and now they're this way. What's happening? And you feel like you're always learning 
which developmental stage they're in now. You're always asking other people, is this normal? Or am I crazy? Is this just my kid? There's a, a philosopher, a futurist named Alvin Toffler. I'll, I'll confess I've never read anything by this man except this famous quote a number of times. But this is what he says. The, the illiterate of the 21st century are not those who cannot read and write, but those who cannot learn, unlearn, and relearn. This is the age that we're in. So, it, and it's tempting when, when we're bombarded with all of this information, all of these demands for more knowledge put on us. It's tempting to say, listen, the one place that, that I don't have to worry about new knowledge is in my relationship with God. Right? That's one place where certainly knowledge is less important. But yet that's exactly what Paul prays for, is that we would increase in fuller knowledge. You see, knowledge and relationship with God, knowledge and closeness with God, knowledge of God and holiness in the entire Bible and a lot here in Ephesians are so integrally connected that it's not even right to say their means and ends. In other words, it's not even right to say the reason I get to know God more is so that I can be closer to him. It's, it, it's not even designed that way. Knowledge of God and closeness to God somehow are wrapped up into the same thing for Paul. Somehow to know God is to be close to him and to be close to him is to increasingly grow in knowledge of him. And so Paul's prayer is that we would grow in knowledge. And yet all of us do know that this knowledge is more than mere facts. Of course it is. Because knowledge of God is knowledge of a person. And to only know facts about a person is a knowledge that is way too thin. But Paul is praying that we would grow in a fuller knowledge of God. And so we're going to see that in four ways this morning. The first thing we're going to see is just what I've said. Paul is praying for a fuller knowledge. And in this fuller knowledge, he's talking about knowledge of God. In verses 15 and 16, we see the occasion of his prayer. He says, listen, I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints. And by the way, that could be a sermon, right? Faith in Christ always leads to love of others, right? To love God and love neighbor stay the same. And because of this, because of this account that he's hearing of their growing love for God and their growing love for each other, he says he does not cease to give thanks for them and he prays for them and he prays that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give them a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. You see, personal knowledge always requires revelation, which is why Paul prays that the Spirit of God would give them a revelation of who God is, right? That God would reveal through his word who he is. There, there really, if I were to say, I need you to get to know someone in the church, there are three ways I guess you could do it. Uh, you could start at the most shallow level, but nonetheless, true knowledge, and that is facts. You could find out facts about someone. You could ask them, what is their name? You could, you could Google them and see what types of things you find. You could find facts about them. And I suppose in some way, you now would have gone deeper in your knowledge of them. That's a way. But then there's, I guess, a second way, and that is you could actually observe them in person. So many of you, uh, you don't really know me, but you have observed me for a long time. You, you see me up front. You know my mannerisms you, you have an idea of who I am. You've heard me reveal a little bit about myself from up front. But yet, you do know me more than just reading facts about me. And you've put those two things together. And you have a better sense of who I am. But this other way of knowing me or knowing any person 
would be what happened last week when, when a couple from this church came over to our house and we do this r- regularly and they, we invited them in and we just had dessert with them and we just talked. And guess what? While we were talking, stories were shared. And so I revealed things about who I was. They revealed things about who they were. And so when you put those things together, the fact that they knew some things about me, they'd have observed me for a while, but now they're sitting across my table and I'm telling them stories about who I am. You see, that's a fuller knowledge of someone. And the type of knowledge that Paul is talking about is that type of knowledge. It's, It's a relational knowledge. It's the type of knowledge that a child discovers when their father for years has been saying to them, I love you no matter what you do. And then imagine that child going off into some far country and slandering the name of their father, slandering the name of the family, living away in direct contradiction to the way they were raised, yet finally coming to the end of themselves and coming back again to a father who has not changed and says, I love you, and embraces them and says, welcome home. Now, before they left, they knew the love of the father, but now there's this fuller knowledge And you see, what Paul is praying is that, you know, the first 14 verses of this book, he just basically backed a dump truck up and just pressed the button and everything fell off the back on top of him. And no wonder now he's praying, I hope that you can sort this out and you need the help of the Holy Spirit. There's a little bit of that going on. But really what he's saying is, the reason I started, I front-loaded this chapter, essentially, is because all of these things are true about you. Now let's work them out. Let's work them out together. And you'll notice here that in order for this to happen, he does pray that the Spirit, it's capital S, so that's Holy Spirit, verse 17b, that the Spirit of wisdom and of revelation would give increased knowledge of who God is. Every morning I pray this. If you do CBR with us, Community Bible Reading, it's our Bible reading initiative, and there's this this black journal And we read a chapter of the Old Testament and a chapter of the New Testament every day. But the first step before you even read, it says prayer of surrender. Now, I pray lots of different things to surrender. But every morning, for as long as I can remember, ever since I read Ephesians, something happened in me. And I realized I need this. I need the eyes of my heart opened and enlightened. I need to acknowledge that daily I need this to happen. I need to acknowledge that every day I need the rising sun of blazing light of God to pierce my dark heart afresh and anew every day. So maybe tomorrow morning you can pray this. Maybe tomorrow morning you can open your Bible first to Ephesians or take this worship folder and put it in your community Bible reading journal. If you don't have one of those, grab one on your way out or slip it into your Bible. And just pray this before you read the scripture. God, open the eyes of my heart that I may know you. Not that I may know mere things, but that I would know you more fully, that I would experience you. And so Paul first prays for this fuller knowledge. And then he prays for three very specific things. Looking in verse 18, having the eyes of our hearts enlightened then, that you may know, one, what is the hope to which he has called you, two, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and three, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. So let's take them in in slight order. I'm going to mix the order up, but we're going to start first with the knowledge of a truer hope. Now we live in a day not only where knowledge is dumped on us constantly, but also we live in an age where our hope is, 
is rooted in a, in a sense of constant progress. Right? We live in, in a time from the Enlightenment on that says things will always progress. Things will always get better. Things are always moving forward. Things are never regressing. And if they do, they'll bounce back quickly. And certainly in our day and age, if we can rest in one thing, we can rest in this. Tomorrow there will be a new technology. Tomorrow there will be a new drug. Tomorrow there will be a new advancement. And if we wait long enough, we can hope in that deliverance. A new technology, a new drug, a new opportunity, a new advancement. But the problem with this type of thinking, the problem with this type of hope, is that it's always moving and shifting on us. And not only that, as one thinker, Oliver O'Donovan, says, the problem with this type of thinking is that the present mood around us dictates the prospect of the future. Right? However I feel, it's going to dictate how strong my hope is in the future. How I feel with what I see with my eyes will either deliver or destroy my hope. But my hope is always shifting. And many of us right now have experienced cultural shifts that are taking us by surprise, aren't we? And if our hope is constrained to what we can see with our eyes, what we can experience with our five senses, then the temptation will always be to either vague fear of the future or nostalgic hope for the past. And in this case, our hope now lies in a vague sense of what might happen, the worst case scenario of the future, or our hope lies in an airbrushed past of our own imagination and making, both of which are shallow, both of which will keep shifting day to day, moment by moment. But the hope that Paul is praying for is that would, we would know that even though our circumstances seem uncertain and things seem impossible to change, nevertheless, our hope in Christ is assured. The biblical hope is rooted not in the mood of the day, but in the faithfulness of God. And so this is not simply an invitation to hope, right? He says that you may know the hope to which you were called, to which you were summoned. It's not a, hey, I got some hope for you over here. If you're just interested in this, you can come on. Paul says, no, no, no. My prayer is that you would know the hope to which you were called. And if your hope is misplaced, you are being disobedient to the call of God, to hope in him. This is a purposeful call from God. And hope's a big deal in the letter. It's actually mentioned four times. In chapter 2, in a couple of weeks, Paul's going to say that you had no hope apart from Christ. You may have thought you had some hope. It wasn't just that, you know, I had a strong hope, but Jesus barely wins. Like, he just got over the edge and, and you know, I, I hedged my bets, but I think Jesus is the stronger hope in this one. I think he's the faster horse in this one. No. Paul's saying you had no hope apart from Jesus. So it wasn't like you went from a solid hope to a better hope. You went from no hope to your only hope. And so God has called us to hope because God has called us to himself. You see, the hope is God himself. And this is really the crux of knowing God in this fuller sense of what Paul is praying. We must know that we belong to God. And this calling to hope is an invitation to trust God's promises above our perception. Did you hear that? This call to hope is to trust God's promises above our perception. Remember, if our hope is in things that shift, the mood of the day will shape the hope of our future. And so we have a solid hope. 
But if we're honest with ourselves, it can, fe- it can feel really scary to hope in God's faithfulness when everything around, of us, around us seems uncertain. Right now, I want you to just take 10 seconds in your mind and think to yourself, what are you uncertain about? What is that loop of anxiety in your mind about this week, about yesterday, about tomorrow, about this afternoon? What news are you waiting to get back that you try to push it out of your mind, but it just keeps popping up because it's a big deal? What's your hope? Where will you hope more fully? It can be scary. And that's why Paul doesn't just pray for knowledge of the hope to which we're called. He also prays for our knowledge of increasing knowledge of God's immeasurable power. Because if we don't have a growth in who God is and his power, then our hope cannot grow because our circumstances will always seem larger than God's power. But it's not just a call to just, you know, will it. No, no, no. God is trustworthy. God is trustworthy. Paul says, well, let me invite you to explore how trustworthy God is by looking at his power. Now, if you look at this verse uh, of 18 here at the end when he's talking about this, he says, what are, he's praying that we would know what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And then verse 19, he starts tripping all over himself, trying to find the right language. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might? If you just read this, He's stacking up words. Like, for example, immeasurable is the Greek word where we get the English word hyperbolic from. He's saying it's immeasurable. It's, it's, it's words seem hyperbolic. I can't even explain it. I'm trying to think of the most grand illustration and I can't, right? He's using the word that we get for hyperbolic, immeasurable greatness. And then of his power, it, the, we get the word dynamite from the Greek word here he uses for power. This explosive, hyperbolic power. But it's not just some abstract power. It's power toward us. Power for us. God is taking his immeasurable, hyperbolic, dynamite-like power and all of the great might throughout history, and he's working it for our good. And Paul wants us to know that. Because when we begin to grasp that a little bit more, then all of a sudden our hope seems a little more sure, doesn't it? And next week, we'll talk about the first of four examples Paul gives of God's power. Namely, next week, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's the first example he gives of God's power. And so he's tripping all over himself. He's trying to increase our knowledge of God's power toward us who believe. This is a comforting power. This is a committed power. This is a personal and directed power, not an abstract power. I think sometimes when we read Ephesians or any letter in the Bible, we, f- we kind of think these people are categorically different than us. We kind of think that these people are a special group of people, which is why Paul would write this letter to them. But the reality is, is that these people are largely like you and me. They live their lives. They work. They enjoy relationships and a good time. They fear the unknown. There are uncertain things in their lives. And yet they hear the message of Jesus and believe somehow, just like you. Somewhere along the line, maybe someone shared the message of Jesus with you and you didn't used to believe and now you do. Or maybe, kids, you've just grown up knowing Jesus. 
and you've always known Jesus, you've always walked with him, that's because he worked in your heart and you didn't even know it. And you trust him and you walk with him. This was also happening in this group of people in Ephesians. And yet, now even though their lives are defined by Jesus, they battle every day for what they love. Their hearts are tangled up in mixed motivations, shameful thoughts, fear of lacking significance, just like you and just like me. And it's to these types of Christians that Paul writes this lofty letter. So you and I might be tempted to think, I don't really dig all of this like highfalutin language. It's kind of lofty for me. Maybe the Ephesians got it, but it just doesn't resonate with me. No, this is for you. This is for me. These prayers, Paul prayed for the churches. This letter was to circulate even unto now. New City, 2018. The prayer is that you would know God's power toward you so that you would experience the hope that you have in Jesus and for me too. I want to tell you one thing though that may be a little different for the Ephesians is that in the book of Acts, when you read about what's happening, one of the greatest concerns and fears they had was Uh, was the interaction of supernatural forces through magic and the occult. It was a great concern for the Ephesians in ancient Ephesus. And Paul says in Acts 19 that the power of the living God in Jesus actually trumps all competing authorities. And Paul's prayer is that you and I would know this too. So you and I may not struggle with competing authorities of magic and occult in our day and age. I'm not saying they don't exist. I'm saying they're usually probably not top of mind to you. What I am saying is that the authorities that you tend to probably have a tangled up heart over are, am I going to get the promotion or not? Because I'm not sure exactly how to politically engage the, the system where I work. Am I ever going to be able to survive this boss with a serious ego? These authorities that we seem to be so large in our lives We tend to think, God doesn't have the power to do this. God doesn't have the power to restore this relationship. God doesn't have the power to overcome this sin and temptation in my life. And yet he does. And yet he will. And Paul prays that you and I, moment by moment, not abstractly, that you would walk out and say, I guess I just got to will myself to believe this again just like every Sunday. But no, Paul's prayer is that you and I would experience real intimacy with Jesus. So this is what I would say. Think of anything, some fear in your life, some emotion, maybe boredom. Maybe you've just been bored this week. Maybe you just lack direction and purpose. Maybe you're afraid of something. I don't know what it is for you, but whatever it is, I would just ask you, I would invite you, not because I in the source of this invitation, but because I'm directing God's invitation to you from his word, that you would come and you would tell him about it. And then you might tell one other person about it and you would be vulnerable and you would be specific and you would be detailed and you would be revealing and you would expect that Jesus knows he loves you and he wants to meet you there. And maybe in that one small thing and you know Jesus' love for you a little bit more, then all of a sudden, That knowledge will grow and grow to where even the thing in your life that you think is untouchable by the power of God all of a sudden seems small compared to the power of God. What will you do? And honestly, when I think of the power of God, for me, for some reason, it tends to not be 
personal first, like my gaze is drawn to the heavens. And I mean the literal heavens, space. Like if you, if you look at my Twitter feed, I follow all the astronauts on the International Space Station. I follow the International Space Station. I follow NASA. I love getting pictures and information and watching three-minute videos of some new view of some crazy far away thing. I love that thing. And when I was in seminary, I uh, had to do this group project and I got paired with this guy from the Netherlands. And uh, wonderful, wonderful man. And we became friends. And, and eventually, throughout the progress of this assignment we were doing together, I found out that he was an astrophysicist. <laughs> crazy, right? About three years older than me. He had his PhD. He was published. He was teaching in university in the Netherlands. English was his fourth language. And I'm thinking, man, I got a good partner for this assignment, astrophysicist with me. And we begin to talk, and he told me the story about power. You see, his thesis was in uh, the realm of supernovas. Now, everything I'm about to say, I have no idea what I'm saying. Okay, everything from now on, I just don't know. So you can fact check me all you want. But I did recently reach out to him. He now is a professor at Wheaton College. And he teaches uh, physics and astronomy. And uh, I reached out to him and I said, brother, is this relatively right? And he said, close enough. So here we go. He started telling me about a neutron star. Okay, And apparently a neutron star is the remnant of a supernova explosion. Now, in normal matter, this I did know from college physics, in normal matter, there's actually a lot of space between atoms. And, and the reason is because you have protons and neutrons and electrons, and their electric charges are different, so they repel each other, which means on an atomic level, there's actually a lot of space. A lot of space. And when, when you try to relativize it to, like, putting a marble on the 50-yard line of, like, a football stadium, the electrons are, like, flying around in the upper deck. That's how much space is on this atomic level. But when you have this huge explosion, all of a sudden, uh, the protons and the neutrons, or the protons and the electrons, they meld together. The power makes them meld together, and all you have is neutrons. And the cool thing about neutrons is that they don't repel each other, so you can stack them in really closely. So you end up getting this really dense thing with all of these neutrons packed in to a star that's only the size of a 10-kilometer radius. And I didn't know how big that would be either. So I looked. All right, so there's this cool app, uh, website, that I put the center of that star right where we are right now. And a 10-kilometer radius wouldn't even make it to Altamont in the north. It wouldn't make it to the airport. It would not make it to Dr. Phillips. It would not make it to Winter Garden. It would be inside that radius. And the density, if you could put that star in the middle of Orlando, it would weigh more than the sun. And if I gave you a teaspoon, think about the teaspoon you cooked with. If I gave you a teaspoon and you took a teaspoon of that matter, that neutron star, it would weigh more than Mount Everest. This is the unimaginable power that God has in the universe. It's incredible. Amazing power. And yet, the power that it takes to create a neutron star is easy compared to the power it takes to raise a dead man. It is easy. And how do I know that? Because Paul wants us to know the great power of God toward us. He could have just said, 
uh, what the psalmist said, which is true, which is the heavens declare the glory of God. Look up and imagine the God who created all of this. It's all of this power directed towards you. But actually he didn't say that. He said it's the power that accords with the one who raised Jesus from the dead. And so notice what Paul accords this power with. It is easy to create a neutron star compared to the power it takes to woo you and me from our blindness every morning we ask him. It is easy for him to create a neutron star compared to the breath that he breathes into us as we read last week in CBR when he breathes life into dry and dusty bones. Notice what Paul accords this power with. The power here is a power that raises you and I. It makes dead hearts come alive. It makes dying marriages flourish when they have no hope. It makes cold hearts red hot. And it makes the power that gives people the joy to sing while they're in a cold prison cell like Paul is when he writes this letter. It makes that possible. And Paul continued to come back to this in the Christian life. He'll say we need God's power. You and I think we don't need God's power. You and I think we can sort of make it along okay in the Christian life. But in Ephesians 6, little preview, he's going to say you do not wrestle against flesh and blood. If you did, maybe the Christian life would be easy. But you wrestle against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Which is why here and in chapter 3, he prays that we would be granted strength with power through his spirit in our inner being to comprehend that which is incomprehensible. So you see, you and I, we have to have God's power daily, moment by moment. And when we see the world in light of this, in light of what God is doing in us and around us, we begin to see the world rightly. We begin to see that our fears and doubts and anxieties and dreams aren't too big. They're too small. We have a small view of the world. We have a small view of God's power. We actually have a small view of our troubles. They're much larger than we even think. And so Paul recognizes and he wants us to recognize that we are a people who will perpetually settle. And yet God is committed to more in our lives. God is committed to deeper, to fuller relationship with us. He's committed to a fully human you, a perfect you. Which leads us to the last thing. And that is, Paul wants us to know the knowledge of the richest identity. He says, I want you to know what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Paul has already spoken about our inheritance twice. Once in verse 11, once in verse 14. You have received an inheritance. You have obtained an inheritance. And here he speaks of a different inheritance. He speaks of God's inheritance. The NIV says it this way, that you would know the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. You see, God is making us perfect because he wants us. God wants us to know his deep love and care for us. He wants us to know how precious we are to him. We are, so to speak, what he looks forward to enjoying forever. Paul wants us to know our beloved status as God's treasured people. And if you have faith in Jesus, you are precious and secure, not based on your background, not based on your effort, not even based on your potential of what you could become, even though don't we love that? No. Our hope is in that he will not leave us or forsake us. And it's only his opinion that ultimately matters of us. He calls you saints. 
You don't deserve that. But his reality is true reality. Only his view of us is truly true. So God intends to perfect us and give us the greatest gift he could possibly give, which is himself. He's going to protect us, and he's going to keep us, and he's going to walk with us, and he's going to take us to himself, and he's going to make us new, and he's going to give of himself eternally, increasingly. And what Paul is praying is, praying is that you and I would know that a little bit more today and tomorrow and the next day. And God has always talked about his people like this. And it's only his power that makes this possible. Let's pray together. Father, I ask you that you would open our eyes to your power. That you would open our eyes to know you. The eyes of our hearts to know you. And I ask that now, even as we respond, that our hope would be made truer. That our identity would be made richer because it's not what we do, it's what you are doing in us. It's who you've called us to be. That is who we are. And I pray that for whatever specifically is piercing our hearts, the place where we most doubt your love for us, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would rush there, that you would preach the finished work of Jesus to that place and that we would be changed. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.